everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Rise Up, Voices from the Frontlines. My name is Krista Fee, and I am your host. And today we are going to have a deep dive conversation about peer support, groundbreaking research in relationships, and what we can do on every level from social to administrative to peer-to-peer to bring the quality of life and reduce post-traumatic stress and suicide and addiction and divorce in our military and first responder families. So please welcome Joe Rizzuti to the show. Hey, Hi, Joe. Thanks. Hey, thanks for having me. It, it just a uh, couple of things. I do have a thick Boston accent and the camera does gain 50 to 70 pounds. So I just want to let your audience know that. But thanks <laughs> for having me. It's, it's great to be here. And thanks for all I the work so that you guys have done. I love that you are so knowledgeable in so many different aspects of the conversations that we have. So this conversation can go in so many amazing directions. Um, I'm guessing we'll probably have you back uh, more than once to go into other aspects that we can't hit on today. Uh, but I love to let our audience know a little bit about the people that I bring on. So let's start at the beginning, which is always a great place to start. Uh, who was Little Joe? What was little your Joe. like? Yeah, I, I actually, it's funny that you said that because I actually wrote a book that I give away called The Cop Story because of my, 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 uh, my growing up, I, I grew up in the city of Revere, Massachusetts, which is a very colorful, um, it could be a sitcom, a beautiful little city on the coast of Massachusetts, right next to Boston. Um, Italian, Irish, and Jewish. Organized crime was was prevalent in the 60s and 70s. Um, my family uh, was... Um, deep in service. My grandfather worked for the TPW. My uncle, who's like a mentor to mine, was a firefighter. Uh, his family were all firefighters. So I kind of grew up in the firefighting service. Uh, I grew up around a firehouse. Um, my stepdad um, was in the Army, um, and I followed his footsteps there. Uh, my biological dad was a two-bit wise guy. It was something like out of the Sopranos. Uh, and uh, I grew up with a learning disability, um, and I I um, overcame that, and it's it's you don't overcame it; you just challenge it every day. And uh, I had a dream; I wanted to be a. I always wanted to go into the the, uh, the fire service, and I realized I don't do heights very well. Um, <laughs> and those guys work really hard. I know not that us cops don't, but uh, I'll I'll take uh, you know the the fast cars and the guns. Uh, compared to the chainsaw on a roof that it's burning. Those guys are amazing. They're my heroes. Uh, if any cop says that they're not, you know, they're the lion here, because deep down inside, they're, they're amazing people. And, uh, yeah, so I uh, grew up in the city of Revere, uh, and what happened early on, I had, uh, with the learning disability, I was a problem child in school. Um, back in the 70s, they didn't have all these great tools. Um, they put us in a room uh, with behavior issues, and uh, I had these great teachers. I had uh, a husband and wife team, uh, uh, Mr. Maleko and, and Christine Race, um, and another guy named Jack Karen. Um, and it, something snapped, it, it hit on it something, a switch went on in my brain uh, my senior year. Um, uh, 
I was in this class. It was a reading class, and I, Jack McCarron was a World War II veteran. I was definitely going into the military. He was a uh, very strict man, uh, which was not the typical teacher that I liked, but I had a lot of respect for him. He brought this gentleman in that looked like he was homeless, uh, and he ended up being an undercover state, Massachusetts state trooper. And it, it was just a switch. I wanted that job. Um, but with the learning disability, uh, I spelled cat with a K. Um, I had a lot of ground to, to make up because I wasn't paying attention in school. Um, I had a dad at the time was working full time for the National Guard as a recruiter. I wanted to join the Marine Corps. And I think my father needed to make his quota. And he steered me toward the National Guard, which was a great opportunity. Um, I went into the Guard and I, I joined to be an MP. My father thought it was the funniest thing in the world because I hated authority. Um, they kicked my butt. Um, they it was the best thing I ever did. Uh, I uh, joined a unit that was downtown Boston, uh, was, was filled with police officers, city cops. They took me under their wings. Um, I it was the youngest. I got went to work full time for the National Guard. I was the youngest National Guard recruiter in history. Um, I made a lot of milestones uh, in the guard, uh, and um, what happened was that eventually I, took, I got lucky and, and, and got a high score, and was able to. Uh, I got called for the fire service, Mass State Police, but Revere at the time was. I, I always wanted to be a Revere cop. There was just something I used to see these guys do choir practice, um, and I'll get into that a little later. Um, and I, I was able to obtain my dream. Uh, and uh, I did it for about 20 years until it was cut short due to an accident. Um, but in the meantime, somewhere along that way, I had a, a bunch of traumatic incidents, and we're very fortunate to have the Boston police, uh, I still refer to as the stress unit, um, that was really the groundbreaking for this whole movement that's going on to this country. It's been around for 40 years. Uh, Ed Donovan, who's still alive, his son is Mike Donovan, a famous comedian, um, we had them in our backyard. So we didn't have back in the day, um, the Mitchell model and, and all this stuff was just coming about. Um, so I was lucky to get support through the stress unit, uh, fell in love with the work. Um, because of a couple of traumas, I was sent up to this farm that just started called the onsite Academy. And it's the, the nation's premier facility for post-traumatic stress and addiction at the time. It was these two amazing angels that, go on to become my, my segregate parents, I call them, Dr. Hayden Duggan and his wife, Valerie. Um, and they basically saved my life. Um, and what it is, is uh, they're based off the Mitchell model. It's it's a it's a beautiful place up in the western part of Massachusetts. Uh, I go up there um, and uh, to deal with some of the traumas, I never left. Uh, and I when I retired, I was fortunate enough to uh, become a LADAC, a drug and alcohol counselor, because I just don't want to do the clinical hours that you people have to do <laughs> mental health side. And, and they make it so hard. It's just not fair. There's so many people that would get into this business to help people, but the academics are uh, making it so tough for people to get into the field. Um, and I think they're jealous of uh, the peer people, peer people that are doing the amazing work. But OnSite's got a beautiful alliance of the, the clinical people that are like yourself that are cultural, culturally competent and um and just uh I, I was volunteering up there when i retired and finally he said no you gotta come work up here and uh i went and got my late act and 
now I'm on staff there. Uh, I work, I am blessed to have an opportunity, which is so unique. I, uh, I work with a phenomenal partner, uh, Jay McKeon. She works up at NEPBA and she works with me up at the, I work with her up at onsite. Um, NEBPA is the New England Police Benevolent Association. Um, they're based here in New England, and I uh, help them with their wellness along with Jane. And I'm also with the Fraternal Order Police. So uh, they allowed me to work with, which is kind of unique because they both do collective bargaining work, but I don't get involved with that politics. They're allowing me to reach as many police officers and first responders um, as I can, as we can. And I got to give credit to Jerry Flynn from the NEBPA and and, uh, and Tom Greenhall over at the FOP. Uh, Tom is another mentor for the FOP, and he does a lot of work with both of us for allowing me to be able to be part of two great organizations. Um, and Sherry Martin, too, uh, and, and uh, who's the director at the FOP. So that's what, a little bit about my story. Um, in, along in there, I, I go, uh, I am in recovery. Uh, I got uh, 11 years under my belt, and, I, and uh, that's something, unfortunately, that's, goes hand in hand with our business. Um, I work strictly with first responders and their families right now. And uh, um, yeah, I get a, a great, great life. Uh, and I'm giving back and I love it. It's extraordinarily rewarding work. And it almost, for people who spend their lives serving others in different capacities, whether that's you know serving in the military, serving as a police officer, serving as a firefighter, it's almost a natural progression. There has to be a plan B for when you, you know, you're going to retire or you're going to get hurt or you're going to med out, you know? So there's, <laughs> there is gotta be a plan B and continuing to be able to help others, continuing to be able to follow that passion and that purpose. It, it keeps retirement from being a danger zone. It keeps retirement from being a, a, terrible thing so many so few people like retirement yeah you know it's it's you're spot on and i do a lot of work and we're going to be doing more work on retirement it's something that we're really pushing um you need a you need a purpose in retirement right um but especially for first responders we you know i got hurt and you go from 100 miles an hour to zero it you, you go into that danger zone where you you pick up the substance or what happens is you're looking for an alternative to replace that. And, um, and I'll just share with your audience is that we hear this all the time. Um, the job is addicting. The job is, I'm going to right out, put it right out. It's the closest thing to sex as you can have is to get into that cruiser or that fire truck. And when those tones go off or that hot job comes in, and, and your community knows what I'm talking about. They're all probably smiling because there is nothing like that. The the chemicals that go off in your brain, and for those of us who are fortunate to do it at the level that I did it and work in the type of environment that I did, um, when that's gone, um, I actually goes – I the story is I go up to on-site when I, when I had to retire from my identity um, because my boss was so worried about me. I've been a cop since I was a kid. I wore a uniform. Um and I had to reinvent myself, and it was to work at onsite. And uh, I, I ended up opening a hot dog cart, something crazy. Um, and it was successful, but I was doing counseling on the side of the road. And it's a true story. And um, and it this allows me to to be in the police stations, the fire stations, and, and to work with first responders, and still live vicariously, um, you know, through them. Um, and you got to have, like you said, that plan B. I love what you said it. Uh, med out. I never heard that term before, med out. Uh, 
uh, in, in, in the, it, it, Mario Oliveira, who's a legendary police officer that was shot up here, he runs the violently injured officers uh, group. And we've talked about this a lot. Our first responders get a raw deal uh, in a lot of states where um, it's not an accident that we get hurt. We, we, we're assaulted. We, we, you know, we get hurt in the job. And we take a financial hit when we retire. And don't get me wrong, the money's good in retirement. But my earning capability here in Massachusetts, and I know the NEPPA is going to be working on some of the legislation, but it's going to be national. Um, why do we get penalized? When I when I left the police department, I no longer get the raises. Um, I, I'm no longer entitled to, to overtime. Um, I'm capped at what I can make. I didn't ask to go out. And our heroes that get shot, I got I got run over and I got I I, I broke my uh, my knee and and I can't do the job anymore. But I think you know uh, we get a raw deal because our first responders give so much and we we, we get penalized for doing our jobs. And I and I know the FOP on the national side and I know the NEBP is also looking to change these. And I know Mario is doing some great work because. Um, you know, somebody asked me the other day, when's the f- best time to start thinking about retirement? I says, the day you get on the job. Because God rest her soul, we just had a 19-year-old police officer that was a member of the NEPPA get killed up in Rutland, Vermont, two days in the job. She sacrificed herself, this hero, and took out a bad guy. Uh, and she was two days out of the academy. So, I mean, yeah, it, you got to start today when you get on the job because you don't know god forbid when it's going to happen and you don't want to leave and we don't talk about the financial piece enough in first responder world um that you know i see i had a kid uh, i call him a kid i call everybody a kid i call him, i call everybody a kid you know it's funny uh i had this this officer pull up and i he had a uh, beautiful f-250 pickup brand new on the job i said what's that payment he says twelve hundred dollars oh i said twelve hundred bucks i go why don't you take that money and, and put it towards, I know houses are expensive, but buy a junk box, use that for your work car and buy a piece of property. Um, and I think that's a, a place that we all have to start thinking about what our young first responders, because the job does pay well in our place, our, our jobs. But uh, yeah, so that's pretty much some of the areas that I like to see us go into uh, down the road. And as, as this, as we go forward in, in, uh, mental health, there's areas that we can do to help our offices. And one of them, I think, is the financial and retirement piece. Right. I love I love to challenge people on this conversation because there's a lot of organizations out there. And I work with a nonprofit coach at, to help us speak about what we do in the best possible way. And he's really angling. He really wants us to say, uh, mental wellness for first responders. And I said, that is not what I'm talking about. What I want to talk about, what I want to change this conversation to is I want to stop talking about mental, mental illness, mental wellness. I want to talk about lifestyle wellness. I want to talk about it being more than just the job. I want to talk about it being a whole person, whole life set of trainings that start before hire and go all the way through retirement. And we normalize that we talk about this stuff. We normalize that we talk about finances. We normalize that we talk about relationships. We normalize this idea that we're 
talking about coping strategies and stress reduction and it doesn't have to be about illness or being broken or being we're so reactive in this particular like we talk about post-traumatic stress disorder all the time. Like that's what people are familiar with suicide and post-traumatic stress disorder. But we're talking about the hundreds of thousands of moments that happened before that. <laughs> yeah. Right? The, the, the cumulative stress that goes on every day that our, you know, our people are so resilient. They are resilient. It's just that the way they mitigate, everybody mitigates stress different. Right. And let's face it, you, you know, you know when you take these jobs, it's going to be a stressful job. Right. It's also the way you perceive it. If you listen to the negative Nellies in your roll call rooms and your fire stations, not so much the fire stations. The fire service does a better job than us. Um, you've got to have that positive attitude. I used to drive my, my cops crazy because um, I love the job. I, I had a, this young cop one time complain, complain, complain. He said, where did you work prior coming here? And he said, Staples. I said, why don't you go back there? Because you know what? If you don't like this job that's giving you a great... Listen, they paid me a lot of money to, to drive a brand new police car really fast, to shoot guns, to to drink a lot of coffee, which I just gave up, um, and, <laughs> and to, uh, to talk to some amazing people. Um, we always talk about the negative calls in the job. Um, and I just recently discussed this. We got to start thinking about the good calls people go, well there's no good calls there's a ton of good calls you just got to know how to look at them uh and there's a this you've got to get out of the cruiser these the, these agencies that don't teach their offices it's okay to get out of that car and talk to the public engage the public um the only way we're going to beat that false narrative that was put forth by a and I don't want to get involved in politics, but that false narrative by that 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 the group I'm not even going to mention their names, um, you know that that labeled all our police officers as murderers, it's just the farthest thing from the truth. You know, the first line of defense for civil civil rights is our police officers. Who's enforcing civil rights laws? It's the patrol officer. I've done it, and you know. The job can be an amazing job. It's just the way the leadership needs to reframe it. That's all it is. And if we reframe it that, you know, you make this, try to make this job a little bit pleasurable instead of miserable. And that comes from leadership. Um, we can cut down a lot of a, a lot of the stress that's out there. And I believe that 100%. I really do. I still think the foundation of police work is relationship and communication. And those are the, those are the most important skills that any officer can have is de-escalation. People like to talk about that. And really all that is, is relationship and communication. If you actually are taught how to talk and how to listen all the time, if it's a normal conversation, that's really helpful. And, like you said, you don't have to stay in the car. The job is to be the bridge for the community. Like you're there to have relationship with the community and staying in the car keeps you apart, keeps you other and exposure and uh, exposure and comfort come from connection. Yeah, you know, you know, some of the best police officers are deputies and SEOs. 
um, because the COs, the corrections offices, and our deputies that work the jails, they don't have the guns on their side of their belt. They don't have the tools. They ha- they have the verbal skills. Um, and I think what helped me was I was a recruiter for the National Guard. So my salesmanship skills, and that makes me a better counselor too, um, you know, we're able to maneuver people. I mean, did I, I wasn't the most, I wasn't the perfect cop by any means. Um, but I see the, the, the skill set that our deputy deputies and our corrections officers, when they work the road, they do a beautiful job at de-escalation because that's what they're taught. They have to, it's a survival skill. Um, listen, we spend a ton of money on useless stuff in the academy, you know, um, some of the training that I got there, I just shake my head. And when I think about it, I, and I, I was talking to Karen Solomon from First Help, who's another great organization that's doing phenomenal work. They're based here in Massachusetts, another another first for us up here. And um, and I said, you know, the, our biggest issue is we spend, the Chiefs out here spend more money on challenge coins and T-shirts than they do on officer wellness. It, it, it's insane. Or... The other stupid thing that they're doing now is I'm a big fan in, in, in uh, is uh, wellness visits. Um, we do it in my practice. You know, we, we do it in my practice, uh, wellness visits. But they have the officer use insurance. When you use insurance, you've got to put a label. You've got to come up with a diagnosis. There has to be diagnostics. It's, it's sad. Because, so they will, it's cheaper to if you know contract with a culturally competent team and now there's no labels now you know because god forbid that that office is called into court and they pull his records and they're going to say well you went to this therapist and it says that the lowest diagnosis and correct me if i'm wrong i think it's like adjustment disorder uh, i don't take insurance and i'm like why would you do some to that to somebody yeah it's great you're giving them a day off but then they get a stretch for these therapists that don't know what they're doing. And I'm going to be very honest with you. There's a lot of them that just want to get paid. And, you know, instead of just spend, spending a little bit of money and getting the quality that's out there and start putting a label on our offices. Um, so we're ha- it's another pet peeve of me. And I see that a lot lately. Oh, we're doing the right thing, mental health. No, you're not. Um, you're doing it to cover, you know, to, to pat yourself on the back. But what are we actually doing for our offices when we set up a wellness program? Um, well, are we doing it to make the chief feel good or we're doing it actually to build morale and, and to take care of the, the members. So as you can see, I'm, I'm quite passionate about this and I, you know, something I, Oh, that conversation I'm also hugely passionate about. I think there's a huge gap in knowledge. I think what is happening is there's this idea that a licensed certified therapist is the go-to for everything. And a therapist is for diagnosis, prescription, and when there's actually a mental health illness, right? You you don't necessarily need a licensed therapist for lifestyle wellness. So if if you're looking for coping strategies to handle stress, if you're looking for someone who can listen to you about your relationship struggles, if you're looking for someone who can give you some financial advice, you don't need a therapist. So you don't need a diagnosis and you don't need all of those negative things that go along with that, where your peers think that you are, you know, not able to have their back anymore or that you're, you know, you're now a liability. There is not 
we're forgetting that there's an entire spectrum of service providers that come before that that could be extraordinarily effective and this and, is your peer support and your coaches and your consultants and you know you've got a ton of different people that can be vetted uh but are not they don't come with the same they don't come with the same negative side effects at that level of care yeah, and, the, and my biggest pet peeve is the culturally competent. You hear me use that term a lot. And it's awful hard to break into this field, right? It's awful hard. Everybody thinks they're going to make a thousand, millions of dollars helping first responders. We feel good. And they graduate and they get their master's and they want to put their shingle up and they want to dictate to a guy like myself or my other peers that have been doing this since 96 because they got a, I had a, a professor in college. She had a doctor, a brilliant person. And she looked down at me and she questioned me about the work that I did. She thought I was lying about who I knew and where I was and what I did. And I, needless to say, had a long conversation with her afterwards. And I'm like, you know, you need the alliance. There's an alliance between the clinical world and the first responder world. And we do it beautifully at onsite, but they need to be culturally competent. What I mean was you've got to leave your ego at the door. Um, our therapists, uh, that are civilian therapists, we have a lot of them that are like myself that will go on after being a first responder and become, you know, in the, in the clinical world, um, and get some sort of license, but you need the Alliance because they bring so much to the table, but they, these clinicians that we work with, they're not about the money. They have great practices. They volunteer. At two in the morning, I'm going to tell you right now, my partner, the ones I work with, they're out on a SISM team volunteering their time. Uh, I know how, uh, some of these blowhards that work at these these facilities that want to get on a podcast and tell you how great they are, that will shut their phones off and they will not show up at a call or a debriefing or a defusing. Um, and they don't have any empathy or sympathy for our offices. They're there to, to, to write a book or, or make a name for themselves. Um, and I'm, I'm, I know I'm going to get a lot of feedback pushback you know on this but i'm telling you what works and what we see works are these beautiful individuals that are out there like yourself that understand our culture and that give their time and we don't have enough of them and the other question is how do you get involved how do you get to be culturally competent and we tell them you volunteer um you start out volunteering uh, and there is a difference. Like the other big push now in, uh, that's going on throughout the country is we've got the CIT clinicians, the ones that work out in the community and they're doing great work, like responding to mental health calls. But they don't, and they should never be doing the work of peer support or, or officer wellness. They can't cross that line. And a lot of agencies are making the mistake of, of using them. They have no experience of working with police or fire fighters like cor corrections officers. Um, so to get the experience, you need to volunteer, I think, first uh, and work at facilities that work with first responders and get a little bit of credibility. Um, because there's a lot of people that are doing more harm than they are good right now in, in that world. And I'll say it, that's enough for me on that because I know I'm going to get pushed back. But, you know, it is what it is. I say that all the time. It's no big deal. I've actually thought I, I've attacked therapists a number of times. I, I don't mean to attack therapists in general, but because, because I see first responders every day, I get all the stories of, you know, I, I tried going to therapy and 
this is what happened. I tried going to therapy and my therapist cried. I tried going yes. to therapy and my therapy therapist looked at me with big, huge doe eyes and said, how could you? Or like these, these different things that happen. And I'm like, well, that's malpractice. <laughs> I'm like, you said you were able to take first responders. And if you can't, if you can't sit there and listen to the story of the two-year-old that was scraped off of the road, um, if you can't handle that, that's not the work for you. Don't see first responders. If you're not ready to, if you're not prepared and capable of, of maintaining your composure under any circumstances, and those circumstances can be someone admitting guilt for something horrific. They can be, you know, the horrific details of, of a, a scene that they've been to, uh, the, whatever it is, you've got to be able to just be okay. Uh, my face cannot change no matter what you say, because the slightest disapproval and that guilt and shame that this person is feeling is going to be confirmed. And I can't, I can't help someone heal from guilt and shame if I'm confirming that they ought to feel that way with my body, with my, with my facial. You're spot on. You're spot on. And you're talking my language. And But we do have a lot of great, I don't want people to think there's so many great clinical people out there that are doing amazing work. Uh, Colonel Dave Grossman is one that comes to mind. Uh, Kevin Gilmartin, Dr. Duggan that I work with and Valerie up at uh, his wife up at Onsite, my partner Jane and, and, and Tommy and Linda Rapos. I could, I could name them. But the difference with them is, is they, they take the time to ride in the cruiser. They respond to the call. Um, they do stuff for nothing for our people. And they get great practices. I mean, they, a lot of these civilian clinicians that we work with, they're very successful in their own right. But they're just the most beautiful, empathetic people in, 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 in giving back. So we have to. And I got to give this is where I give Sherry Martin credit at the FOP level. She's got a vetting guide that anybody can get if they go to the FOP website. Um, and we vet our clinicians. If, like, when you call us, we have clinicians that will get you in right away that we work with that are culturally competent, um, that do take insurance because at some point in time you have to take it, right? Because you have to do, do a diagnosis, but they understand the culture. And I've probably got 12, not, I, I, probably five, I would say five good ones that I use um, that specialize in different arenas, like um, Tracy Parsons up in, in this neck of the woods. She's one of our go-tos for relationships, um, and she understands our people. Um, we've got specialized clinicians that are first responder friendly, and they just didn't happen overnight. You know right. what I'm saying? So, but anyways. Right. It's, it takes, just ask the questions. When you go to see someone, uh, you are hiring, you are hiring them. Like you have the right as an individual to ask them questions and choose if they are the right person for you. You don't have to see whoever you get sent to first. So think of it as a job interview and you're interviewing them as much as they're interviewing you and ask them what their background is. Ask them why they work with first responders. Yeah. Ask them how many first responders they've seen and what are what are the outcomes? What are their success rates? It's It's okay to to advocate for yourself. If anything this podcast does today, it, it opens up the discussion for somebody that's maybe looking for a therapist. And I applaud you for doing that because we need to have our people go to the right person because they don't, they do, do no more harm than good. Um, you know, I wouldn't have got 
to the, I wouldn't have come up with the hypothesis in the work that I am doing now on relationships if it wasn't for a civilian therapist that I work with, right? She, my partner Jane, and it, it, she spent years working with first responders in, in relationships. And what she brought to the table and set off a lot of red flags that I've seen in my studies on police suicide. And we're able to come up with this, this hypothesis on relationships and how they relate to police suicide that we had written and taken down to the, the conference. I took down to the conference down in Nashville. We ran it by a bunch of people. Then we ran it by the VA and I ran it by First Help. And we're able to develop a relationship group now where we work. And, and this is all stuff that we see that she brought to the table because she spent years working on first responders and their marriages and their relationships. I come in from my world at this peer support and I'm going, yeah, I see this. I see that. Oh my God, this is, we, we, we got a profile here. You know, we call, you guys call it a hypothesis. We call it a profile. Um, I'm a big fan of John Douglas and the, the guys from the behavioral science unit. But so, and we're able to now put this, uh, profile out there and we're able to see now um, if we see these traits in somebody that I guarantee you, you're going to see uh, a, a, a past childhood trauma. Uh, you're going to, you're going to see um, the lack of sleep. You're going to see the infidelity. You're going to see the, the financial issues. You're going to see the substance abuse. And guess what? You're going to go along with that. You're going to see either a suicide attempt, a suicidal uh, ideology. I always have a hard time with that word. Um, and it didn't take a rocket scientist to figure it out. That was the alliance between a, a, a culturally competent, uh, therapist that worked at first responders and a, a lunatic like me that is passionate about this. And now all of a sudden we're, we're actually putting the plan into uh, action. And I get to give you my, my, my boss credit, Dr. Duggan, instead of like, you know, you know, the, the clinical world, they want to research everything. They want to get a grant and research, research, because they want the money for the, the, the research, right? My boss is just the opposite. He was awesome. He's like, you got something. Now come up with a plan and let's attack it and come up with a relationship group. And we have, and we're the only ones that I know that are doing that type of work. And it's been groundbreaking the people that we're helping because we're getting them to, we're getting them to talk about the death of their animal, right? Listen, uh, when animals and first responders go hand in hand. Um, when my last one of my bulldogs died, I ended up in the hospital. I always have a heart attack. Why? Because they're unconditional love. At two o'clock in the morning, when I come off a shift and everybody's sleeping, and there's a bottle of Tito's there, and there's my bulldog, and I want to cry about the dead kid. I'm crying to my bulldog. I'm crying to my animal. And when they pass, it, it, it's, it's traumatic. But in our studies, we're finding that animals and first responders go hand in hand. And you've got to talk about that relationship with the animal. And it's, it's, it's been groundbreaking. And I'm, I'm so happy I'm involved in that type of the research and the work that we're doing. That's awesome. That's totally awesome. I love that. I, I've been buried in a research project on uh, the connection between childhood adverse experiences and the choice to go into a first responder profession, that inclination to, to choose to help others. Um, so that's, that's, uh, my brain has been wrapped around the, like, everyone I talk to has the same story. So, so what is this? And 
the research that exists is not really wanting to completely link um, those adverse childhood experiences to necessarily to our adult choices. There's a lot of vague language and a lot of, well, this might be associated, but as a academic world, we're, we're refusing to take a stand and go, okay, look, there is a connection here. There is something here. Uh, how can we use this for, uh, for risk assessment and for creating knowledge base for our new first responders to go, I already have these childhood adverse experiences. I'm already at risk for post-traumatic stress. How can I mitigate this knowing my weaknesses as I go in? And I hate to use the word weaknesses, maybe vulnerabilities or predispositions is better. Uh, but knowing the risks and knowing the, that we know how to mitigate it with all of these different tools and resources, how can we give them the tools to say, I might be a little more at risk than my partner or my buddy here. I'm going to take this more seriously and, and I'm going to do these things that mitigate my stress and that keep me mentally healthy from the very beginning and the outset of my career so that I don't end up with these negative outcomes. So that's, that's the work that I'm like super passionate about right now. Oh, you, you, you're talking my language. Hey, hey, listen, I, I fully disclose I was assaulted as a kid and, and, one of the studies I disclosed it at 45 years old up at onsite and we had the work that they did was some of the research you might want to talk to Valerie on that is, is that um, we know that it's, it's proven that uh, people who have had the ACEs or the, 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 uh, the childhood traumas, they come into this profession. Um, it's, we see it every week. Um, and I came into this profession and I realize now because I had somebody rescue me and we see those heroes that they're our saviors. We want to go in there and help somebody because somebody helped us. We want to, we come in that profession. I really believe that. So um, that's something that is absolutely positively. There's something there. Um, again, how would you know this unless you talk to first responders and you have an open mind, yeah. you know, uh, you, you're not going to get this type of conversation at dock in the box. Uh, some of the higher academic places. Listen, we've got some of the best mental health facilities in the world that still refuse to hire a peer support person That because I don't know if they're afraid of having that peer on staff because they're a threat, um, but you need the alliance. And there's absolutely, there's absolutely something about first responders who had, you know, the, the, child, the, the screwed up childhood or the abuse that will come, they, they come into this profession. I, I honestly believe it. And they make some of the best first responders, but you're right. They become vulnerable. And that's the, the hypothesis that we see is that, you know, we self-medicate because when we get the accumulative trauma, because society has taught us to self-medicate, the profession's taught us it's okay after, you know, after the, we drink all through the academy. You know, right. it's, it's part of the culture. <laughs> yeah, it's part of the culture, you know. But God forbid you use a CBD product, right, that actually is going to help somebody. I'm a, I'm a reduction guy, you know. I, I, when's the last time I ever had a fight with somebody that was, you know, and I'm not advocating for THC by any means, but on CBD, you know, I, I look at this 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 distorted sense of, you know, what works and what doesn't work. I mean, let's face it. You could tell, you could tell a cop, all day long, they got to work out and eat healthy. It ain't going to happen to 40% of us because two in the morning, when you've worked 10 hours and the only thing that's open up here is, you know, Dunkin' Donuts or 7-Eleven, 
and you know, and you're drinking a gallon of coffee, which I'll get into in a minute about the caffeine addiction, um, it ain't gonna happen. So what do you do? You were taught it's okay to drink, but we never talked about the side effects of drinking called alcoholism and what it does to us and what it does to our culture. So uh, yeah, it, it, it's it, these are conversations that we got to start having about the relationships, and we got to have a we we got to finally start having the, uh, the 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 conversation that you know not not everybody's an alcoholic, but we have to make it, people aware that it, it if you're going to self medicate over a trauma, put the jug down, go see a therapist, go get help. You know, it's simple as that. It, you know, right knowing recognizing for yourself the difference between i'm having a drink and i'm coping yeah it's that sucker drink right the first drink we, we we know it's a stimulant it's the first drink you're gonna feel good that we call it the sucker drink but we know now because of neuro, the neuroscience your second and third drink become a depressant and what are you doing you're chasing to try to find that first drink you're trying to find that high that's exactly what's going on in our mind but we don't realize what we're doing is we're putting that poison it becomes a depressant and then we go down the rabbit hole. Listen, the studies show what is it? Ninety-six percent of the police suicides involved with alcohol and a firearm. You take out those equations, and I think that study came from the VA. I don't. I'm not. I know where I heard it. It's either the VA or First Help. When you take those things out of the equation, you get a seventy percent survivability right? on suicide. You know, and I, I applaud the work that Karen did with getting that federal bill that's out there. As long as uh, I guess the bill, the way the bill reads is that. If the first responder has seeking has sought help, um, there's a survivor benefit now um, for suicide, and I, and I, that's the work that first responders did to get that bill, and their families. So, it's good stuff that's happening. Yep. So you work a lot on relationships. Yes. Let's talk a little bit about first responder marriages. Well, it, it's. I, I work as a team on that. It's it, the whole concept that we work at onsite. It's something that we see all the time. Uh, we started a relationship group based on the work that me and my, my partner did, Jane. But actually, the work was being done by Valerie and, and, and Hayden up at onsite for years. We just kind of enhanced it. Um, we see almost, I, if I had a thumbnail sketch on statistics, it's close to 80% of our first responders that will come up and that will talk about relationships that, or they, they, that had a relationship in the past, but didn't know how to about, talk about it, either being a, a past childhood relationship or a marriage issue or the marital issue becomes because of the childhood issue. That's, you know, that's got fired up over the, the trauma that's not being treated. Right. Um, you know, I think at one point in time on my own job, we had, on my shift, uh, we had like an 86% divorce rate or infidelity rate. And nobody wants to talk about that, okay? But it's real. Um, it's real and it's happening. Um, so, you know, and I talked a little bit, uh, Colonel Dave Grossman's got a book out um, that he was awesome that he autographed for me. It's called The Bull Bulletproof Marriage. Uh, I'll give it a plug. Because um, he's done some great research in this stuff too. Um, so, you know, what we're seeing is it's common sense, right? You're going to change. You know, you go from a civilian, you go into this crazy world, the first responder world, and, you know, all of a sudden um, you're not, your needs have changed at home, right? You're seeing all this horrific stuff. Um, you're not communicating. You communicate more with the, you know, you're spending more time 
with your brothers and sisters, um, I had talked to an agency yesterday. They do 16 hours in a cruiser. So if you're doing 16 hours with your partner in a cruiser, how much time are you spending home with your wife and kids? And what's that look like? What's that marriage look like? And so what happens is you reach out to somebody um, that's showing you that attention that you're not getting home. But before you know it, um, you get the guilt because you're doing it. And you go down that rabbit hole where that guilt becomes, you know, the alcoholism, you're spending the money. And before you know it, you're, uh, you're thinking about uh, there's no way out. And there is a way out. There's a lot of ways out. I mean, sometimes the marriage is done, you know, right? Sometimes um, the marriage changes because of the job. And that person that you married is not a good fit for your profession. Uh, it, it, you know, we have to be honest about that. But for the most part, when you reach out to somebody on an infidelity, it's usually because of what's happening in your past or on the job. So we have to talk about it because it's happening all the time and it's costing people's marriages. It's costing families to be split apart. Um, it's also talk causing alcoholism and it's causing suicide in the end. Um, you know, like I said, it's not all, you know, you, you're going to change. There's no vote in my mind. I don't, you know, unless you've been married for five or six years prior the job, it will change the dynamics of what's going on at home if you let it. And that's the key, if you let it. So the work that we're doing up there is we're identifying the stuff and we're seeing more of it and people are getting help and we're saving marriages. And these therapists that I talk about, they're saving marriages and they're saving families. And it's amazing work that they're doing because they understand the culture uh, of, of the, the world of being a first responder. And if anybody says it doesn't change you, they need to go find another profession. Um, you know? No, interestingly, the an observation that I've made in, in my practice is the best the best marriages with first responders seem to be marriages where both parties are first responders. And if you dig into that, why might that be? You have to go, okay, well, they understand each other's culture. They understand each other's language. They yeah. uh, they feel safe telling each other their experiences and sharing their burdens of their day. So there's all of these elements of how do you make and how do you make a civilian first responder marriage have those same qualities? How do you build that trust that that a first responder feels safe sharing their experiences and their emotions? the way that they would feel safe if their wife was a nurse or an EMT or whatever it is. But how do we bring spouses that are civilians onto the same being a part of the family, being a member of the that culture? We have to include them. We have to start bringing them into the experiences of the job. We have to let them it has to be embedded into the culture at work to some extent. Spot on. Kevin, I know Dr. Gamont talked about this a long time ago. Boston PD, having the conversation early on pre-appointment is huge. Having a culturally competent marriage therapist on speed dial is important. 
the communication skills. I give an example and one quick tool is, you know, I'll tell people and I used to get in trouble with this all the time. Like I would come off a shift and if my significant other wanted me to go to a, a function, I did not, I had no business being at that function because I haven't de-escalated for 24 hours. And when you go there with people that don't understand your business, and I always get this, well, you would jump and run for another first responder or you have no problem being at a first responder function because they understand me. When you take me even today, like going to a family function with a bunch of people that don't understand me, I've been retired 11 years. Uh, my skin crawls because the questions that they ask and they, I just want to just like hide in a corner, leave me alone. Um, and who do we gravitate in those barbecues and birthday parties and weddings? It's the other first responder. You might not even like the guy or girl, but guess <laughs> what? It's true. You're going to gravitate them because we feel safe. Uh, and one thing I, if your audience does have a member, um, you give them space to deescalate before you ask them to go to a, a family function, give them time just to relax a good even 10 hours just to, to before you put them in a position where they're going to feel uncomfortable because let's face it, we are comfortable with our peers and we change. Our lives are going to change. But anyways, I know we're getting short on time, so <laughs> stop Bob babbling. No, it's all very valuable information. I, I love this conversation. And I think, I think it's great for people to hear uh, the differences. I, because I think people don't necessarily, if you're not in it, you don't know. If you're not in it, you just see these people that act, you know, standoffish and, and tense. And, you know, that's the person at the party that's standing with their back in the corner and is watching everybody. Or carrying the gun, carrying the gun, right? Why are you going to take that gun in, into my, my barbecue? Right. So what's wrong with that dude? Why is he so uptight? You know, why is he so stressed out? Why doesn't he like me? That's the other. Why doesn't he like me? <laughs> so it, it's it's good to have these conversations. Uh, I think part of our job here with these podcasts is to to help humanize the uniform, to help remind people that the person that is in this role it's just that is still a person and there's thoughts, feelings, emotions, dreams, a family, obligations, stresses, and imperfections. And we need to accept that we can't continue looking at first responders as more than human or less than human. And that's the cultural tendency is it is one or the other extreme, you know, and it, it's very important to just go, that is still a man that is still a woman. And they, have the same needs that I do. So how can I allow them to have those needs and still wear that uniform? Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it, it's so important, especially now where we're losing so many people out of this profession. People are retiring, aging out and people are coming on the job and leaving because they just, they don't, especially on the police side, it, our numbers are so down right now and it's dangerous. It's absolutely dangerous. We're asking officers to do 16 hour shifts which is, you know, it's insane. The lack of sleep is worse than being on cocaine and heroin. Um, and then, uh, you know, we, we, like me, I got caught up in caffeine addiction. We, we're drinking tons of coffee, we, which is a stimulant, and we're doing damage to our bodies. Uh, I see these young kids pounding down these monster energy drinks to stay awake. Uh, and then we discipline them when they want to uh, 
take five minutes behind the police station to get a little sleep. We want to suspend them. And I think it's, it's absolutely stupid. We're, we're investing hundreds of thousands of dollars in our, our, our people that are doing amazing work in, in the, uh, the leadership, um, has no empathy or sympathy or don't education of what is actually going on in the field. Um, and I think that's, that's a conversation that needs to be taking take place now before we lose the profession. You know, I'm hearing some people are having 48 hour shifts, 48 hour shifts, and then four days off. Well, on the fire service, that's prevalent, you know, um, but we're seeing now on the PD side, it's very common. We're talking without even being forced. This is collectively bargained into their contract that they're doing 16 hour shifts. Um, a lot of them do it because they like it because they get to have the time off to work. Up here, we call them details or overtime. You know, um, we're well compensated in Massachusetts for our, our work, but the truth of the matter is, you know, when do you sleep? And, and it's the 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 Ferguson effect. When you look at somebody's eyes and you can tell that they're making a mistake, a tragic, deadly mistake. I, I, I would ask is, you know, on the, a lot of these use of force issues that have gone salt. Well, when's the last time the guy slept? When's the last time he talked to a mental health profession for a check, check, uh, check in, you know what I'm saying? Uh, with, when you put your officer, or you see an officer working, you know, the 16 hours, how effective can they be? Our firefighters get to stand down. Our firefighters train during the day, but they get to stand down. Um, I'm not saying that we're paying guys to sleep in the job, but we have to be more cautious. Hey, listen, here's the here's the here's my pet peeve. If you're forcing the patrol division to work 16 hours and you got people on five and two on admin schedule that go home and don't work weekends, get their butts out of their desks and make them fill in these shifts. If you've got command staff that isn't pulling a shift to alleviate some of the stress that's on patrol. You're not an effective leader. I came out of the military where we're taught that you, you know, your troops eat first, not you. Right. Anyways, so leadership is long lost. <laughs> I don't know what they teach at that FBI academy, or what they're teaching on officer wellness down there, but it seems like when these people come out of that that school down there, they try to reinvent the wheel, and it's common sense. Um, take care of your people. Take care of your people. Absolutely. So before we go, yes. how can how can people find out more about the organization that you serve? And it's very simple. I serve a lot of organizations. I'll just put my phone number out there because uh, I, I my phone doesn't stop. And that's the you know we we don't we don't have an off switch being first responders. We're never going to have an off switch. You're not going to tell us about boundaries, all the psycho babble stuff that we learn in college from these psychologists. It doesn't throw it out the window over us because our first responders. I'm going to end up probably dying on with my phone in my hand, helping the first responder. And that's the way I want to die. Um, so oh, nice. a whole nother conversation. Yeah. On that. The nice. difference in what it looks like between clinical therapy yeah. and what first responder work looks like. Oh, absolutely. It's On you. call 24 seven, you're available in between sessions. No boundaries. The power differential. Yeah. You're not a doctor and a patient. You are equals. You avoid the clinical environment as much as possible it's better to do it's better to have sessions on, with a fishing pole in your hand yeah world 978-408-5279 978-408-5279 you can get me on facebook 
uh, I'm out there. And like I said, if there's anything that I can help you, uh, if your agency's looking for resources, I've got a, I'm tapped in throughout the country. Um, I have a brother-in-law who's a, a LA County firefighter. Um, you know, the, so I'm well tapped in throughout the country at different agencies. I'd be more than glad if you're having a bad day and you just want to talk, that's what we do. So uh, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward. You guys are doing great work. The, this conversation is awesome. You're spot on. And I, I get, I, it's nice to talk to somebody that understands spot on what we're doing. So I applaud you. Thank you so much. We'll stay in touch and we'll Absolutely. probably, we'll probably do some more episodes. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you everybody so much for joining us today for this episode of Rise Up Voices from the Frontlines. I will uh, connect you. I will put the links down below for so you can reach Joe and so that you can reach battle to be if you are looking to support our organization or you're looking for resources. If you want to support this podcast, you can go to battle2b.org, B-A-T-T-L-E, the number 2-B-E.org. Again, thank you so much for being with us today. I can't wait to see you next week.